And I'm Lindsay. And this is episode five of Ningyo Bingo. Where you keep collecting dolls, but never seem to win the game. Uh, sorry for the large hiatus for the whopping, like, nine listeners that we have. <laughs> now, don't get down on yourself. Nine is more than one. And nine is awesome. Yeah, that is true. Look, someday <laughs> I'll actually get our Tumblr page going, and it's going to be great. Fabulous. We have good content here, so I have no doubts about our potential success in the future. <laughs> so we have had a hiatus, but why did we have a hiatus, Becca? Um, well, several cool things. We went to Castle Point Anime Convention. Um, That's in New Jersey and took place in... Hoboken. Hoboken. Yes, at the uh, Stevens Institute for Technology, I believe it is. Yeah. And um, we had two panels there. Um, I'm currently in the process of editing them. And by the time this is up, either shortly before or shortly after... Our lovely new YouTube channel will have our two video, first video episodes of this, uh, including our wonderful, wonderful um, slideshows. So you can get something vaguely approximate the experience, which is not quite the same as actually sitting in our presence. But you can hear and see what we were talking about while we were at the event. Yes. And get a little bit of an idea of how that went and learn a little bit, hopefully, at the same time. And then Lindsay had a lovely adventure of photography for a week or two. Um, <laughs> yeah. So my life is weird sometimes. When you do photography, like cosplay photography, which is like one of my major things that I am doing on the side at the moment, sometimes interesting stuff happens to you and you end up in New York for a weekend and a half. It was awesome. Yeah. You kept posting pictures of delicious food on... <laughs> yeah. So it was... Uh... It was a little... This is what you get being a friend of mine. I just torture you with the things I'm eating constantly. Yeah, yeah. So with me today, other than Lindsay, of course, I have Felix, my... Uh, uh, oh, we have Felix. He hasn't shown up yet. No, that's why I grabbed him. Uh, so he's a Delph Jury 06. Um, and today, actually, I put him in a new wig. It's now a brown wig rather than his usual usual purple to match his oh purple my eyes goodness he's How wearing could a, you? A, a day appropriate shirt it's kind of a it's kind of a plaid gingham kind of thing um yeah but it's kind of red white and blue so uh, it is memorial oh, yeah, day right. today that's so. right today is memorial day and initially there's normally a parade on my street that like closes the street but as i was driving home last night i noticed they were saying parade canceled due to inclement weather because it is also raining horribly today off and on constantly yeah so a lot of people will have a uh, rain on their parade and uh, maybe rain on their uh, picnics and or and or barbecues which means it's a perfect day for us to sit inside with some tea and record a new episode for everybody. Yes, uh, in the morning, which is a new one for us. Usually, I'm up till like ten or so. Today, we're today's... just we're just reversing the torture. Is all. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a I'm an early. So, if bird. you guys are wondering why Lindsay doesn't sound quite as energetic as normal, it's because I woke up way earlier than my body wanted to today. But that is fine because I'm doing it for all of you. Yay! And um, Becca was talking about how she has Felix with her today. Felix is a beautiful Delf, impish Delf doll that is grand, and he has a great smirk on him. 
I have, again with me because he's small and easily transportable, is my purple Kortos dragon. Oh, wonderful. And we're going to we're gonna uh, talk a little about an article that was written about those guys and the artist today. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's going to be part of what we're talking about today. And as we're kind of flirting around the topic today, today we're going to be talking about the media. And when we say media, we mean sort of mass media, largely produced and decimated media, such as through articles, written articles, that is, um, and primarily videos, things that are maybe tied into advertisement or news that has a widespread sort of decimation or a widespread audience. And we're going to be talking a little bit about how people talk about the hobby and why do they talk about it when it's certain audiences to certain other audiences and we have you have to keep in mind when you're talking about media you always have to kind of take a step back into the meta and like while there might be a report or something written that is kind of going over the basic facts of something you also have to realize when there's three or four people interviewed or there's one or two photos in an article that there have, was probably hundreds of people at this place and hundreds of dolls to take pictures of. So the either writer, the videographer, the director chose these specific things to take pictures of. So even though it's not like um uh what's the word? It's not it's not edited. It's not like it's not like... Well, they are edited. They are often heavily edited. Right. It, it's edited, but it's not like somebody didn't take what the director wrote and said, oh, you can't show that. But still, the director or the writer or whatever is making conscious choices on what you, the reader, viewer, get to see and read. There's no such thing as a neutral viewpoint. When you're consuming something, especially a piece of mass media, there's a few things that the creator of that media have in mind. There's goals they have and motives they have and ideas that they're trying to communicate to you. It's not a passive process. It is a very active series of conscious choices, just as Becca just said, where they're trying to make you feel or believe something or trying to get a reaction out of you. And depending on who is creating the media and for whom they are making it, those goals and what they're aiming for, which is the same meaning as goals because I am repetitive today, uh, those goals are going to change and shift and what they're trying to get out of you, the audience is going to change and shift. And being more aware of that will really inform a way to critically consume that media without necessarily believing everything you read right away. So, uh, obviously, when there's things like newscasts and things like that, out on the general media generally being, like, mass broadcast, it's kind of from outside our group talking about the doll collectors and the dolls to outside the group. So, in addition to talking about um, just the basics of it, changeable wigs, changeable eyes, has parts, can move and pose. You also get them talking about the group of collectors. And what the, what's going on here is that often when we're talking about an outside to an outside group, they're, tr what they're using the doll hobby for, what they're trying to get out of their audience is 
a reaction or a shock factor. What the goal of those groups are in terms of outsider to outsider is it's someone who has noticed something occurring and wants to share that information with another group of people. But, but because historically of the position of this kind of hobby and the view of this kind of hobby in a sort of a larger cultural sense, it often turns into using the hobby in the most shock factor way possible in order to drum up interest and ratings in people who would ordinarily maybe not seek out this information. Yeah, so so while outside-to-outside media maybe have some informative basics, its primary intent is entertainment. Yes, it's trying to entertain you. It's trying to grab your attention and make you stay with them for the next 10 minutes while they're talking about it. And when it comes to things like this, the easy low-hanging fruit method of keeping an audience's attention, especially when it becomes to do like news and news sources like that, is they go for the shock factor. Yes. Um, so uh, an easy example of this was uh, in a newscast titled Asian Dolls Spark Craze Among Collectors from KCRA Sacramento, which was aired in November of 2007. And Um, I think an important thing to keep in mind about this particular video report that we're going to be talking about is that this is like a smaller local station. This isn't like a major news outlet for around the USA where there might be different standards in place or certain reputations for them to hold. This is like a small local television station news story um pamela Wu was the reporter um and the reason they kind of fell into this is because during 2007 in sacramento just two years prior the uh local um one u.s uh sumika for volks opened up so they actually had a local brick and mortar store that where they could go to and interview people plus all the the customers that flocked there that they could also interview and talk to. Um, I didn't realize that was the reason this place had this news thing happen. Yes, because it was kind of local news. Oh, so, wait. So there's been a Tenshi no Sato in Sacramento? Um, Tenshi no Sato refers to just the uh, kind of original one in... um, Kyoto. Right, I mean, Tenshi no Sumika. There was a Sumika in Sacramento? I can't remember if it's Sacramento, but it was within California, certainly. Um, oh, that's right. Sacramento is in California. What is wrong with me? I don't this know. Is... <laughs> Look, it's early for me. My brain is not fully working yet. Okay, okay. So, okay, so this is the same Sumika that we've always heard about. It's the one that closed and then turned to online only. All right. Yes, got yes, it. this one. So, things to note here, they actually got a prop, essentially, which was one of the dolls, um, onto there, which she introduced the story with, with her, uh, the co-anchors, um, and she was talking about how they're fully customizable, and she quite literally just (laughs) grabs a fistful of the wig and pulls it off, exposing the doll's bare head. It was very much a sort of 
Guess what, guys? This looks like an ordinary doll, but let me use my magic powers to whip off this wig, and you'll see. Actually, it's a creepy doll with no hair. Yeah, and... Was the atmosphere of that part of the recording. And I have to imagine some doll collector, like, offered their doll to be shown, and then they did that, and they crumpled the wig, and they were just, like, curling up on the inside into, like, the fetal position and crying. (laughs) Well, like, um, this is a really good example of a theme we're going to notice in a lot of the outside to outside, where not only is there a shock factor kind of being pushed, like, can you believe kind of, can you believe that people actually, like a clickbait article title, that sort of drives you to come in and look further, but there's a general disregard for the property and the ownership of person of the people they're talking about. Yeah, um... So the the art the the news report itself opens up with really creepy music like kind of like yeah so so it's trying to go for the otherness of the doll kind of trying to play on the the these things are weird and not alive and they look like people um they're going for the very typical horror movie angle where the doll as a semi-humanoid person like humanoid figure can evoke in people like an uncanny valley response which is something we talk about in one of our panels that you're going to be able to see soon hopefully and it's just lazy (laughs) but um yeah and then and then we get to who they're um, interviewing, and they opened up the entire segment uh, after it's introduced. You know, it kind of cuts in, into the clip that there was pre-prepared. And the first words out are, are you obsessed? So dun, dun, dun. <laughs> they're immediately, that's like such a leading question. It's horrible news reporting, ultimately. So they're trying to kind of have them fall into a category of obsessed, which means I'm doing this beyond what is healthy. Exactly. And we see this a lot in outside to outside communication where there's this idea that these are replacing something or there's something wrong with you or... That you're using the hobby and the investment in the hobby as a coping mechanism for something that's wrong with you. Yes. Um, And once again, to kind of evoke the otherness and stuff uh, and the shock factor, at the end of the whole thing where she's actually at the Sumika, she actually has an eyeball in one hand, a, a foot in the other, and says they're fully customizable from eyeballs to feet and oh man when you're just having it in your hand like that it's like disembodied parts and of a weird and that is like genuinely when presented within the context that they had built through this art this news article which is no more than 10 minutes long i believe oh man it was really short maybe even four or five minutes yeah like this was a very brief blip that was a reaction to having the Sumika in the area and thus causing, and probably in a small town, like, this was probably not a very, well, like, they wouldn't have seen people come in specifically for something like this 
before it happened. And I'm sure people in the area were like, I wonder what this thing is. And what the news decided to do is basically you can kind of see in the minds of whoever was assigned this was assigned this was the first thing they went what do i think of when i think of dolls and i think of horror movies with creepy dolls in them where the doll is used as a metaphor for something in human life because that's how horror movies work and doll parts and a guy dying in the vat that chucky gets made in and all that exactly that there's a narrative already existing of the doll as unearthly vehicle for the unfinished needs of humans and that's clearly the inspiration they took for presenting this information in an attempt to create interest in what they viewed themselves as boring yeah so then the other fun part about this is um they did ask questions to a few of the doll owners they actually took footage in a home as several people met up and kind of showed off their dolls to each other as we do um but the most extensive interview the one they kind of spent the most time on asked the most questions was this one girl that was a daughter that got interested in the hobby whose mother was there as well um the girl had um braces she had a lisp she was bashful uh they asked her about the dolls being anatomically correct very Um, intrusively no less uh, kind of, sort of. They asked her, um, it was something about, uh, a lot of the friends thought the guys were girls, and then the... Which the, is a very, very old technique for teasing someone who's into, say, anime and manga. Right, and the, the newscasters are like, well, what do you do when that happens? She's like, well, then I, then I show them that the dolls are anatomically correct. But she did it with pausing and a little bit of bashfulness because, you know, she's a young girl. She's not exactly, like, gung-ho about sex sexuality, you know, downstairs parts. Especially being cornered like this by by all apparent um, clues that we get from how the thing was recorded. A very aggressive personality. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how aggressive it was, but just in a setting where you have an interview and you are in front of you, possibly a boom mic above you, and a large camera. And she's a young camera. woman as well, and yeah. I got a little bit of a sense that she may not be totally accustomed to this kind. Like, she's not someone who is been prepared for how do you defend yourself as a person in a very intrusive interview process, or in a process like this. There is a few other... Um... There's one other notable uh, English language coverage, uh, too, actually. But we'll, we'll hit on the other one later. One is the dreaded Japanorama. And now I'm going to scream quietly into my microphone for the rest of the talking about Japanorama. Because I have done some extensive analysis of Japanorama within a certain context in school. Which meant I had to sit and watch a lot of Japanorama. And some of you may remember this show. It was from like the mid to early 2000s, I believe it was. And it was hosted by Mr. Wasi Ross, as they call him in Britain. And it was basically part of the early 
look at the crazy Japan craze with when anime and manga were really rising up as interests that were visible. Yeah, it really portrayed it as other and different and like wacky. Yeah. They really, really were pushing the campy subculture view of it while presenting it as this sort of kaleidoscope of semi-dreamlike future past Japan as an unreal dream place where you go into it and then they brought back to the viewer the most intriguing, different, different from us sort of elements of the pop culture and then presented it to the viewers. And while in some cases Japanorama actually did, on occasion, a good job, which is weird for me to say, like, you, like many people are very fond of this show because they actually went and interviewed people. They talked to people about what they were doing that at the time were very hard to access in English. Um, I know some of their segments that they did on like directors of certain films they actually went and talked to the directors and there are interviews in translated English that are some of the only interviews that exist with these people. And at the time it was one of the few major examples of a public like because in britain this is a public television thing because of the way the bbc this is a bbc show which means it's public television technically in britain and it's a large well decimated disseminated rather um it's primary television in britain so it's a very well decimated disseminated (laughs) decimated means it was destroyed disseminated (laughs) show and it was one of the few examples of that that we had at the time but it has extremely biased in its viewpoint and its entire thesis as a show was look at wacky japan let's all sit and stare at it for a while so when they did their episode that focuses almost entirely for 30 to 40 minutes on asian ball jointed dolls exclusively which would be season two episode six kawaii cute that aired on the 12th of october 2006 Exactly. So it was within the idea of the kawaii culture that people were so obsessed with at the time, and still are. Um, A good chunk of that show was spent talking about the dolls, but much as we saw in something that was recorded in Sacramento, California, they also went into it with a a very large dose of, man, dolls? Being an adult? Being interested in dolls? Man, wow. What a subculture. Yeah, so there was um, uh, one thing I forgot to mention on the other one, which is almost hit on all of the outside to outside uh, media, is they always go over cost. Because there's always a shock factor in the cost. Absolutely. Um, That being said, they actually had uh, the interviewees, which was, uh, there was one gentleman who had a meet at his house who had a large collection and they also uh went to uh i think it was like a karaoke bar with a small group of like four or yeah. five ladies uh, the group and there four... was a gentleman or so amongst that group yeah um they the ladies didn't get that much but the um the gentleman they actually gave a lot of airtime to and they actually showed one shot. How fascinating. There was, like, one guy, and he's the one who gets turned into the spokesperson. Yes. Um, but it was kind of interesting. I think one of the best best um, little shots of this 
was just standing back and watching the um the people like play and enjoy their dolls one guy was saying oh can i have that prop over there it's a little alcohol bottle and the other guy's like why your your girl looks really young isn't she a minor i don't know she should have that so it's just kind of like this casual conversation that doll collectors would have with each other and it was a very nice candid shot and within the hobby like we can see that as part of the play of work, working with the dolls but it's also a joke like that is a joke and one of the things that I'm not sure was made clear in the way that segment was even presented was it was nice to see them allowing the hobbyists to be hobbyists and interacting with each other but I they all right they were recording like earlier we're saying the editors are making choices very conscious choices they're not accidental choices where they looked at the video they took. They probably took video of them just sitting around talking to each other for probably a good ten, five to ten minutes. And then out of that took a very small segment that they thought was the most interesting as part of the segment they were making. And they chose the one where they're making a comment about underage girls drinking. Right. And also where they're humanizing the dolls, kind of giving them more life than an inanimate object. Exactly. So, well, as a hobbyist, if you're, like, if you're into this hobby and you're within the hobby, you can understand this within the context of what it was intended. But as a viewer with no background, potentially watching Japanorama and hearing about these things for the first time, even though Japanorama does something that the other show did not, which is allowing unedited, spoken, well, not really unedited, but, like, natural speech of the hobbyists themselves talking for themselves without any leading questions, they still which is very refreshing. And sometimes Japanorama does things like that, which is technically really nice. They still made a choice about which part of that is that interaction they showed us. Yeah. And, um, the, the other thing we have to remind, remind ourselves of, of this Japanorama episode is how they, how they, um, they bookshelved like the bookends of this. Yes. They introduced it by talking about girls day and about dolls day. And that's the, an attempt to to present the viewer with some sort of cultural reasoning why dolls in general would be important at all. Yeah, and he makes this ride ride joke about this day everybody in Japan burns all their dolls and then the next day everybody has to go out and buy dolls again, which isn't how it works at all. No. <laughs> Not a lot of people even have many of these, and you probably don't do it unless you have a child in the house, let alone many of these things are kept generation to generation as almost a type of heirloom. Yeah, so so usually only they go away if they get damaged, if they're hurt, if there's like bad memories associated with it or something. In which and like... Japan also, throughout the country, has different customs for different holidays in general because this country is bigger than California and has distinct groups. Yeah. But that being said, there is a shrine in Japan that does have a place where you can safely dispose of your dolls that have very, very human traits and you want them to be disposed of properly, lest... Uh, if you believe in these sort of things, which not everybody in Japan does, important to note, so it doesn't have angry feelings towards you later. 
And even saying, like, that aside, whether or not you personally believe in an object needing to be respectfully disposed of or not, that doesn't discount the value of that of the person who does believe this way. Right. And that's important. Like, these are cultural things that do exist, but Japanorama decided to go the extra mile and turn it into a hyperbolic statement, which then gives, with the intention of saying, dude, Japan, they just waste money. They just buy things and then burn them for some weird cultural reason and then buy them again, which is what the entire setup there was implying. Yeah, and it, it, it almost sounded like that weird, like, very dry, to, to me, weird, very dry uh, British humor. But at the same time, I'm looking at it, I'm like, you could have followed that up with some uh, just a simple statement that religions in the Japan are actually diverse and not everyone practices this. You know, like, just a simple three or four sentence, like, you know. Contextualizing what they're talking about within the specificity of what it is related to. One of the things you notice a lot, one thing you have to think about, and this is one of the things that's very dear to my heart, is whenever you have a European or American, what you would generically call in a terrible term that I hate, a Western point of view, talking about an Asian point of view, is that there is a huge history behind this conversation, which I'm not going to get into here because I can literally talk about this for hours. There's a history of imperialization and dehumanization of Asian people and Asian countries in in response to the imperialistic aims of Europe and America and a lot of other countries as well. And that feeds into a very problematic way of talking about Asia. And everything that's happening here with the ball-jointed dolls, not only do you have the element of the doll as an unusual object, as a subculture that can be hard to understand for people who aren't coming to it with an open mind, but you also have it that's from Asia. And we are trained, very well trained, to talk about Asia in terms of, wow, Asia, who gets those guys? I sure don't. Look at all the weird things they're doing. And they're all generically the same, because why would we ever recognize that there's different places and people and places? Yeah, so so the, the, the following bookend was right at the end of the episode where uh, Ross asked the viewer, so what did we learn today? And <laughs> Which is not they, an uncommon way for Japanorama to end. Um, so it's kind of their, their end tagline. And they proceed to show uh, a small clip that was done with stop motion of a, the collection, actually the, the gentleman's collection uh, of dolls with their heads spinning on their own uh, kind of with a weird sound, almost like a cranking, um, that kind of uh, elicits that feeling of uh, memories of the culture of horror movies. And this is like a very quick clip that what Japanorama does as part of its structure is it uses short clips between beats of the narrative that they're creating with the doc document. Uh, I don't even want to call it a documentary. Um, <laughs> it's called these like the. As the beats between the, you often use like a wacky picture or something very pop, very surreal as their sort of spacers between segments as they move from one thing to another. And this is just a five second spacer, but why? It didn't need to be there. Didn't need to be there. You didn't need to dehumanize the doll. They didn't need to go for the horror movie 
um, the horror movie with the girl whose head spins around because she's possessed sort of image. It's all part of the greater goal of this specific media to create the wow, shocking, intriguing sort of atmosphere to drive up viewership. Yeah, one of the, the one of the few uh, examples I have that don't quite have the dehumanize the doll aspect uh, was uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse, an article from a now uh, defunct uh, magazine called Misbehave from issue number five from approximately 2007 because my magazine actually didn't say what month it was published in. Yeah, of course it didn't. Uh, the words were by Laura Checkaway. Uh, the photos were by Brian Berman. Um, and they showed several pictures of the owners with their dolls. It was a real big focus on the owners. Um, Which, so far, in what we've been looking at, is different now. We've been mostly talking about outsiders trying to give an overview of the hobby as a sort of introduction to other outsiders. Look at this thing I found! Isn't it weird? Sort of atmosphere, where the owners are sort of incidental. But the Misbehave article goes at it from a different direction, focusing more on the owners than it is on the actual physical dolls. Now, it does describe the dolls, and it does describe Volks's full custom service, and it does discuss, again, the cost. Uh, the outro of the article is describing uh, several ladies waiting for their taxi at the end of the uh, Volks Dalpa, and it mentions that there's thousands of dollars of merchandise within the, the the parcels that they're holding on the curb waiting for right, their taxi. Right. Um, and it mentions it before as well. Um, and while the other ones didn't really focus on the owners, they kind of said it without saying it. Yes. Um, this one says it outright. First of all, there's three sets of pictures of owners with their dolls. The first picture is pretty good. The gal's smiling, looking towards the camera. It's pretty good. The second picture has a lady and probably, um, her, her male, uh, counterpart. Um, and the gal isn't even looking at the, the camera. She's looking away. They could have just had two seconds to have them directed to look towards the camera and maybe smile and look like they're enjoying themselves at a really cool convention, but they didn't. The third picture has a gal holding her doll and she's not even smiling at all. It's like as you go through the article and as you see this picture, this picture, this picture, it actually kind of shows the doll owners getting more miserable. And it, it, similarly, in the wording of it, it, it kind of gets weirder and weirder in the description of the, the people and their, like, weird interest. Um, and if I recall correctly from that article, there is clearly a movement in the tone. From, in the beginning, a fairly neutral, what I would consider neutral, sort of, in, like, informative tone, and then it slowly kind of morphs as the article goes on into sort of like but underneath the skin of this hobby lies a monster kind of yes. Im image. Uh, the, 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 the point where it took a definite weird turn where it is where there was a quote where they said uh, in regards to people changing their dolls and actually making subtractive or additive modifications to the dolls not like a, not unlike an addiction to plastic surgery and that's where everything goes downhill. Yes. So now there's talking about that, that, like, that 
there is something Well, the word wrong. addiction has appeared. Yes. Which, which is something the, that is a theme. And addiction is a sickness. And they, they, they are immediately associating it with uh, a non-normative sort of state of mind that is harmful. Yes. Yeah. So they have that. Then they go into a section called, titled, Brokeback Dolphy. Eh. Oh, God, I forgot about this part. And they have a brief talk about Mm. Yaoi, and they have a brief talk about how in Yaoi relationships, the partners are equal, and this is non-threatening to females, et cetera, et cetera. Um, They're trying to, not only are they trying to talk about BJD, but they're trying to talk about fandom shipping at the same time and these are just two things that are too big i think for this magazine to attempt to tackle at once yeah especially in like one paragraph uh in the yes. end they they at this particular dalpa they released um a limited version of masha which was a tribute a tribute to uh sarah shosh s c h o c h i'm not good at pronouncing names um, who uh, unfortunately passed away and Volks did a tribute release for her because she was a fan and, uh, uh, she did some things, I believe, through Make-A-Wish, um, to get a doll and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, this article included a quote from Volks and then interpreted it as, well, it's kind of weird that they're impregnating this dead girl so that a child doll comes down from above. And I'm like, that's not at all what they were saying. You're, you have to understand the littles lost in translation here. Well, there's also, like, for Volks as a company, and Volks has a very distinct company image, which is very sincere. Like, in... One of the things that happens in translation between Japanese humor and English humor is in English we have sarcasm where over-sincerity is interpreted as humor or as something that's intended as a tongue-in-cheek comment. That is, like, if I say, oh man, that's so great. Like, there's a tone in English that is interpreted as humor or as something that we're supposed to be laughing at that when translated when things, certain things and phrases are translated from Japanese, they're entirely sincere. They're extremely emotionally sincere statements that in translation end up resembling that sense of English humor that we have been sort of keyed to laugh at. And that's also partially in a problem with the translator not doing their job quite properly, completely. But also it's a very willful misunderstanding that for Volks, what they're trying to do is respect the spirit of this person who loved this so much. And they went even as far to say, we want to sort of give back to that image of this person in memorial and create something that represents something she loved so much. And the willful misinterpretation of Volks' intent there which is very willful in my opinion because of the general tone of the article. They wanted something to be weird. Yeah. So that they could make it into look at this wacky hobby, which is the general theme of everything we're seeing here. Oh yeah. And it makes me a little 
the dis like this disrespect of the intent like the willful misunderstanding or the disrespect of the intention of the subgroup of which they are trying to talk about which is fairly like an example of power on the fact of that media that they can decide to talk this way about them there's not much we can do to change them after the fact is pretty reflects poorly on the person who decided to write this yeah very very badly or reflects on the fact that they said well screw it this is an r magazine and no one from that group is going to read this so no one's going to care Sometimes people take as a point of pride, especially when it comes to shocking news, like someone who's try- like when you're trying to present information, it you can feel from the outset there the lack of respect for the people involved in the hobby because of the language being used. Yeah. Immediately we're going to language about illness, we're going very extreme language about illness and implications about the mental state of the people within this hobby without at any point in asking those hobbyists to speak for themselves in a direct, un, like, in a very direct way, allowing their words to act on their own instead of being chopped up and contextualized within the the message that this person is trying to create. And this isn't limited to uh, American uh, news. Uh, in the Dolls Party 15 news report, uh, which uh, Dolls Party 15 occurred on the 5th of May 2008, I'm not sure the original... Air, uh, which news station in Japan originally aired this because all of that information has since been clipped on YouTube. Yes. Um, they had very willful choices of talking about uh, with female collectors. Like, why, why do you collect these? What, what, what makes these nice for you? Someone's like, oh, I don't have my child anymore. Someone was like, they comfort me. So there's this idea of like, they're they're sick they're not right they're not happy and this is the thing that they're using i mean this is like there are statements being made here like the doll comforts me it sort of replaces me having children these aren't unusual things to hear people say they are true and for some people that they provide like we were, we've talked about why are dolls something that gives that it's like satisfying Right. And we were talking about how it fulfills, helps you fulfill social needs. It makes you feel part of a social group. It gives outlets for personal creative exploration. And like these statements, it comforts me, is a very, can be presented as a very positive thing because lots of things comfort us. Food comforts us. Buying new clothes comforts us. A lot of things that we do that are more, are often presented or more understood by someone who's outside of the hobby you could also say, man, I find, like, it's, it makes me feel good when I go out and I get my hair done or get my nails done. But suddenly we're talking about this about dolls and now we're, we're ill? Like, people yeah. are really willfully wanting, there's already a preconception here. You could take that statement and if you're being thoughtful about your analysis, you can go either way into it. You can say, well, what does this mean for this person and what's the context of it? Instead of doing that, they're saying it. They're kind of, like, looking askance at the camera while someone's talking to them and saying, like, because people are, like, trying to understand why the hobby is so, um, I'm losing my English, I want to use Japanese terms, no, Lindsay, bad, uh, is so, um, heatedly something people are into, like, what, where does this passion come from? 
And instead of going into questions of creativity or outlets for personal expression or the comfort of having an, like a human figure that is like something controllable, instead of going in those, there's a lot of ways you could go, but no, we're always going to go in the, there's something missing for this person. They are not complete. The doll completes them, but they're, they're sick. They need help. They're having issues. They're using this as a coping mechanism for something. And even if you are, what's wrong with that? Yeah, and, and one of the other, uh, one of the males they um, interviewed, um, he talked about how fast his collection grew. And it was inordinately fast on the realm of shopping addiction. Yeah. Which brings us to the documentary directed by Maureen Drudge. And produced by Making Movies uh, in Canada, uh, Living Dolls: The Subculture of Doll Collecting. Um, it, uh, it first aired on the fifth of October, twenty thirteen, on Canada TV. It first aired in the USA at the Austin Film Festival on twenty sixth October, twenty thirteen. So we're talking about something that's much more recent than the other things that we've been talking about so far. Uh, yeah, by by several years. Kind, uh, it's of note that this one does not focus on Asian ball jointed dolls, but what it does focus on is adult collectors of dolls, and every single subject that was picked had something that um, was obviously like uh, you would almost say like a mental malady, uh, something that the dolls or the collecting or something was working towards. Um, yeah, to be clear, Baldrin and Dolls do not really appear in this documentary. Yes. And it's not about something, it's not a Western viewpoint talking about an Asian thing. We're talking, which changes how the dialogue comes across, which will become clear in a minute. We're ta- it's an Australian documentarist talking no, about um, people Canadian. in Australia. Canadian. Canadian? Is it Canada? Canada. But the people were in Australia, if I recall. No, no, no. This one's Living Dolls, the subculture of doll collecting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a... Which actually, country are we remember, talking but, but, about? But making movies is uh, from Canada. Um, I, I'm not sure. Anyway, so... Just Basically, over, long story short, we're talking about Western people talking about other Western people. <laughs> and, and just to kind of briefly go over this, there was Michael who made the wonderful um, robots having sex... Uh, exhibit that you can see uh, pretty close to the uh, fit um, in the uh, sex museum in New York City um, who showed signs of extreme hoarding. Uh, His sink did not work. They showed him with a a relationship with a a lady that uh, never uh, stayed romantic which would be viewed as a failed relationship. And they Depend, record- like the way, especially the way it was framed. Yes, and they they recorded him saying, "I do not want to change." There was Debbie, who was uh, collected Evelyn Wilde from Tonner, who um, had pretty much an extreme shopping addiction, and they recorded uh, segments interviewing both her and her husband, and the the surtell sign of a shopping addiction is when you make continually make purchases and hide them and they were showing her describing that she did this and describing that she borrowed money from her mom to help pay off things and she was actually paying off doll things um 
there was uh, David who uh, had uh, love dolls. Um, and uh, he was actually the happiest out of the bunch. But at, in the end, they made it a point to say, even though it was kind of obvious on the film, that his wife did not want to be filmed, which kind of implied that there was uh, not an agreement on this and thereby uh, not a healthy relationship in the marriage. And uh, I'm forgetting the name of the gentleman who collected the Barbies. I am not the person to look to for remembering things. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, for whatever reason, I just wrote uh, the wrong notes in the wrong section. But this gentleman um, had signs of being highly unindependent. Uh, showed uh, would be like a, in a somewhat codependent relationship with his parents at most the way it was presented. Him and his uh, partner had taken over the upstairs master bedroom while the parents ended up living in the basement. He does not have a job. Um, the entirety of the room was mainly filled with uh, the mitten box dolls. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he showed signs of extreme stress when the end of the... He went to a Barbie convention, which he was very excited to do. But they made a point of showing his extreme stress at being away from his partner, away from his safety, and just kind of showing that he wasn't very strong individually. So once again, kind of showing it was less about the dolls and more about, hey, look at these people and these issues that they have. By the way, they collect dolls. Maybe that's related. And this fits, while well, the documentary itself was at least attempting to allow the individuals to sort of speak for themselves and contextualize what's happening with them. And it was talking more about them as people than it is anything about the collectors or a collecting hobby. They the general framing of it is, this is a documentary about the subculture of collecting dolls, which means that the people I am representing to you now are representative of that group. Yeah, and... It wasn't really the subculture of collecting dolls. It was the it was the four case studies of these pe people who had issues that collected dolls. The collecting dolls for these four individuals ended up incidental to the story being told by the documentary. It was very much a focus on four individuals and how individually, in order to cope with things that were in their lives, dolls happened to come into, like they used dolls as a vehicle for that coping mechanism. And it was nothing really about the act of the hobby or being in the hobby or the logistics of the hobby or anything else. It was about them and how they were connected to each other because they all happened to have dolls somewhere in their lives. Uh, which brings us to the uh, final um, video that we had, uh, which was one of the videos that we actually had the um, narrative being mostly driven by the interviewees rather than the interviewers. Um, at least uh, from our glances. Um, it was called These Dolls Have Dicks by mm. Vive Cool City um, from Melbourne, Australia, aired on the 8th of October, 2008. Um, and they really allowed the, the interviewees to narrate. Uh, There's very, very few over like over narration or things from the interviewers. There was a happy bouncing music in the background rather than something eerie or otherworldly. Um, it definitely still talks about the cost of the dolls. Every single one of these always talks about the cost as like a shock factor. And of course, the way it opens is important. Yeah, and they do say these dolls have dicks. And they show... Immediately. Like, uh, that's uh, the first thing. And then immediately they're showing you images of, look... 
we were right. Look at all these sticks. It, it, it was almost like Five Cool City was almost like the the original clickbait. Like, look, yes. this doll has a dick. Okay, now we're going to talk about other things now. Um, which, you know, I'm glad they got to the other things. But it did kind of get back to that. And the last image was of what they described as doll snatch. Very uncouthly. Um <laughs> Uh, so and with a link to Den of Angels saying, if you want to view more of this, come here. More um, of this. And like the this they're referring to is like, guys, what exactly are you mean by this? Like, which this is this, this? Yeah. And um, interestingly, uh, even though they talked about cost, they let the interviewers once again kind of lead the conversation about cost. So they talked about the average cost, but then they also talked about the highest value that they have heard of for the cost and then they showed which was very cool everybody's reaction to this which was oh god no that's way too much so like they show that that people have like limits and like don't go outside the limits and like have like a healthy collecting skill and they sold showed them interacting socially with each other and kind of enjoying themselves and this is not I mean, we're still dealing with something that were images that they're showing us were specifically chosen, edited together, but a much larger percentage of it is uncut dialogue from the interviewees, which is something we did see in the Living Dolls documentary, because that was the documentary style of that individual. But it's, And this is much shorter, but it's much more about allowing the collectors to explain for themselves in their own terms without too much interference from the framing devices about what they are doing and why and they're also allowing people who very clearly are like voluntarily are very much like yeah sure i'll talk to you about this as opposed to cornering the most awkward person they could find who they could perhaps pressure into reacting to them one of the most of the people who dominate the dialogue are clearly stronger personalities who are very willing to explain on their own behalf what they are doing and to defend themselves from the questions being given to them. Yes. And uh, that being said, there is one question the interviewer asks that actually allows his voice to be heard on the uh, audio. And that is, why do ball-jointed dolls shit on Barbie? And then there's, like, this laughter afterwards, and you can kind of tell everyone's like, yeah, our dolls are kind of cooler than Barbie, but, uh, what? Yeah, no, it was kind of like a shock factor phrasing and everything like that, just like the title. He was trying to evoke a reaction. He wanted something aggressive out of them, because up until that point, basically the collectors weren't playing along. Good for you guys, by the way, over in Europe. <laughs> yeah, that being said, the, the uh, they, they... They took the question in, in st- style, saying, like, yo, Barbies are, like, fashion dolls, and they're, like, skinny, and they have, like, these blank expressions, and they're just not that great, really. Um, so it was kind of nice. Yeah, and one of the things, like, you do have to keep in mind that as someone who is maybe never has heard of this hobby before, and then you're looking at this video like, ha ha oh man, sexualization of children's toys. So cool. Like, the framing of this is within the context of, once again, we have this in, in like input into what's being talked about of the sexualization that seems like 
like an aberration where yeah. it's like look at this would you ever believe that a children's toy would have sexually defining characteristics as part of its sculpting and actually just recently on a facebook you know my my social justice for dolls platform i guess someone asked why do they have genitalia and, and then i kind of went back with why don't our dolls have genitalia we have to yeah, what's imagine- the big deal really like they're representations of human forms. Why are you so freaked out by this? Right, and it and it kind of it kind of goes into a little of the yeah, it came from a different culture initially, but it also came out of the Hans Belmer, which was into uh, the sexualization of the dolls, and then the Ryo Yoshida, which was like also about sexualization of the dolls. But by the time it got to the doll, as the Asian ball jointed dolls that we know today, the more mass produced ones, as instead of individual art dolls, the dolls as a hobby, we also have to imagine that this is from Japan, where it's kind of okay to like. Oh, you, you, you can't show that inserting into that. We're going to put a little bar here. But boobs, yeah, that's fine. Um, like, the social standards for what is considered acceptable presentation of the human body and the physicality of the body changes depending on where you are. And a lot of this is reflecting sort of an, a very Victorian idea that still exists today of the child as a non-gendered creature which is like appropriate but also like different cultures go you know what your body has stuff and what's wrong with that it is part and natural part of your existence deal with it yeah as opposed to uh, over the other day with my co-workers and they're saying oh she can't wear that that's too exposing that makes her look too sexual and i'm like you're making it sexual by saying it is sexual. <laughs> it's like, she's not doing anything. You're the one looking at it and going, oh my goodness, that's slightly attractive. And it's like, that's more reflective on the person making the statement than the person wearing anything at all. Uh, anyway, I think with our time at the moment, that will be part one of two. Um, yeah, that's what I was just thinking as well. As I As we've been chatting about the outside to outside media visions like oh look at that time mark where we're heading up onto an hour now yes so that will be um our uh part one of two of uh dolls in the media uh and i will dub this one i'm on the outside and i'm looking into the dollhouse (laughs) that sounds like a pretty good title to me so why don't we sum up a little bit about what we're observing here and why we think it's being what it's coming from so we have uh, a minimal amount of the basics of what these dolls are. Uh, so uh, even in the um, documentary uh, Living Dolls, uh, for the less familiar dolls like Evelyn Wilde and um, the love dolls, they show the basic things of these are the basic functions these have, these are the basic costs, etc. And they did it with all the Asian ball-jointed dolls as well. But then we also have a focus on the people. And we have a focus on, oh, these people collect these uh, because they're not happy, because they have an issue. Um, and they focus on interviewing people that do things to an excess or to what could be perceived as an unhealthy level. Um, 
We did have an example we didn't go over in the Dolls Party News Report where they actually showed a husband and wife team that kind of uh, did pretty well as for as uh, having a healthy marriage relationship. But then they, even then they uh, showed a wall of Gundams and how that was his excessive hobby. And then him talking about his wife and saying, uh, sometimes I wonder how we can have such extravagances. Um, so there's this constant idea of excess or mental disability or something like that. There's a sense that there's a lack of limits on the individual who is participating in the hobby, which is connected to things like addiction and obsession, which is when things negatively affect your day-to-day life. And then finally, with the dolls themselves, uh, there's an act of, uh, I know they're not human, but like dehumanizing the doll, attaching the doll to the long uh, cultural history of horror and things like that. And then we have to ask ourselves, all right, these are the themes that we're seeing over and over within these presentations of these ideas, not just in Western media talking about Asian media, but in Asian media talking about Asian media. Why is it this way? And uh, it's all because we're making entertainment about these weird folks. We're talking about these weird things and these weird folks, and isn't it going to be interesting? Basically, because as we were saying at the top of the show, and as we have mentioned over and over again, whenever, when in these cases, the motivation and goal of the people making these things have always been, have so far been coming from an angle of these things aren't innately interesting on their own. We have to make it interesting. And in order to make it interesting, we have to find an angle with which to talk about it. And the angle we're choosing to talk about it about is within the context of the creepy, the strange, the unusual to pique the interest of the viewer and to draw them into actually watching this. Granted, most of these are like five to ten minute segments and not the usual hour we spend on a podcast describing why a doll would be socially satisfying. But that is something that is telling in and of itself. Like, if we look at where all these things are coming from, the Sacramento news station, there was a Tenshinosumika in the local area and people didn't know what these things were. The, 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 I believe the news story was also from the Japanese news story was also from a local Japanese station that was probably right next to Tokyo big site. And as, and this is a fairly big event that draws a huge amount of people outside. And it was another attempt to saying, we're noticing something happening in our community and people have questions about it. So now me as a small radio news station is going to assign this fairly local news, low impact, low interest story to someone in the office who may not even want to be doing this story at all to begin with. And then that person has to go out and looks at this. And as someone who has no connection to the hobby or the background culture at all, go ask themselves, how can I make other people care about this? I don't even care about this. And I think there's something very telling there. Yeah, and that one started with the the intro of, oh, what is this? Is it a concert? They have a violin case. What's inside? It's a doll. Ah, it's weird. Like, that's how they introduced that entire news segment. <laughs> exactly. Um, in addition, the these dolls have dicks. Personally, that seems like there was a local meetup that happened occasionally in a public place nearby where the people who create that web show live or work and they went hey why don't we just go down and talk to them sometime and that was the angle that they chose for the very similar reasons and even when we get to the living dolls 
documentary, which spends a very good time and a long amount of time, probably, it seemed like from the footage, they spent maybe a week with each person talking to them about what was going on and following them around a little bit in their daily lives, which isn't a long time in a person's life, really. No. But even then, when they're coming at it, it's not a reaction to, I see this in my community, I'm trying to explain it to someone, and I don't even really find this interesting. Clearly, the documentarian really found these people interesting. She spent time with them. She really sat down and recorded with them. And there's a lot of dialogue that she went through, a lot of interviews, a lot of just following them around. And granted, for these individuals, the the greater part of their story was that, yes, they did have issues and uh, they were using dolls as part of the coping mechanism. But it's not really about dolls at all, which is none of these are actually about the dolls. In the end, it's not a person who went into this question of what's happening with a sense of curiosity and sort of going into it. It's people who went into this and went, oh, I don't really get this. How do I make other people find this interesting? And instead of talking at all about the greater aspects of the hobby or looking at multiple people from within the hobby from different areas or different aspects of the hobby, they take what's immediately in front of them only what's immediately in front of them. They take the easiest task. They don't ask any deeper questions. It's like the first people they kind of run into. And then they go, well, the dolls themselves are a little creepy and I don't really care about them. So I'm going to make this a human interest story. And wow, look at all these people who don't seem to have much going in their lives because why else would they be here anyway? Is the sort of the atmosphere of the media. And it's all coming out from what triggered them creating this segment who is doing the segment? They're clearly not people from within the hobby because of the questions they're asking. And at no point is someone from within that subculture directing or having an active hand in what's going on, except for these dolls have dicks, where they allow the people to take control away from them of the narrative yes. through the interview. So, um, as my cat is currently clawing on the door and meowing at me, uh, I has I'll... it time to feed him, Becca? N- no, he's just lonely. Um, oh, baby. <laughs> well, we'll leave you on these thoughts as we go into uh, in the next episode, part two, where we discuss uh, uh, people inside the uh, hobby group talking to people inside the hobby group. So, until next time. Remember to keep having fun, but keep a budget.